0: Welcome to the SF Weekly Podcast. I'm Nick Veronin, your editor-in-exile, and I am joined once again by Kevin. The Rent is still pretty damn high. Pretty damn high, <laughs> Hume. What up, man?
1: What's going on, dude?
0: I, uh, I, uh, remember Jimmy McMillan, founder of The Rent is Too Damn High Party?
1: <laughs> I just know of him as that line, yes, yes.
0: Yeah. Do you remember what he looks like? He had great facial oh, hair. He yeah. had like,
1: dude sculpted. was dude was you know put together. He had like a really manicured goatee, right, and extremely long white but like well maintained hair, right?
0: Yeah, I'm and wrong. mutton chops. So like, and oh, but there yeah. was a deline. It wasn't a full beard. There was a delineation between the mutton chops and the goatee. <laughs> and like who was crisp i just yeah. i looked at i was like a real crisp line he got yeah anyway he's a new yorker he
1: got uh, memefied.
0: <laughs> he attempted to run for mayor of new york and governor of new york back in the day um 10 plus years ago and uh i bring it up because i know that you've been starting to look at, at new pol- places to rent and um I know also from our reporting at SF weekly that over the past year, rents have dropped all over the Bay area, but I suspect the rent is still too damn high. Am am I right?
1: Yeah, you're, you're, you're correct. Um, (laughs) prices have definitely been on an uptick. Uh, I mean, I don't, I didn't pay attention to what was going on exactly during the pandemic with prices and whatnot, but, um, you know, there's a trend on, on Craigslist, um, with a lot of apartment, uh, nicer, newer complexes kind of promoting their, their rent prices as much lower than they really are by advertising, oh. like, you know, 10 weeks free live, I've 10, seen this. you know, that type of stuff. Um, and I'm sure, you know, since you fairly recently moved, um, you know, they're, they're trying to sneak in like you know, with like a, maybe like five or $600 under the normal rent prices. And then they gouge you after the fact, I think.
0: Yeah. it's They get you on the back end. It's bullshit.
1: Yeah. So that's definitely the thing that I've noticed the most. I'm like, ah, these are, you know, they're trying to get people into these new swanky places and trying to see what, you know, there's, there's are other things out there that are, you know, a bit more cost effective and, 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 Are good, so i have been. I'm trying to look for like little diamonds in the rough, like that, you know.
0: So I don't know if I realized that that was relatively new. um, I don't know if it's
1: new. I'm just noticing it. Well, maybe it is. Yeah, maybe it's not.
0: Yeah, I have. Yeah, the free rent, the the months of free rent, but then you pay that rent later.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it's sort of like you. You sign like an extra long lease, like a fifteen month or an 18 month lease, and they discount your rent and then they jack it up after the terms of that decrease. Yeah. Yeah. I it's a bait and switch. Point. God yep. damn it. Yep. So I'm I'm doing my damnedest to try to find something that's uh, you know, much more affordable for um, let's say a journalist's salary. Yeah, we we talked about this like
0: last week off mic. And I mean, the only advice that I can give for my recent look um bout of looking is like, and this isn't g- good for most, for a lot of people, I'm sure, because a lot of people don't have the luxury that I did, which was like, I didn't have to move out. It was just like, it was time. And my fiance and I knew that it was time. And we we kind of took our time. We took our time and we fell in love with like a series of places and then like, then we ended up finding a place that was even a better fit than that. So, like, if you have time, um, that's my that's my hack. And I guess yeah. I think my advice too: stay away from uh, anything that's branded as a luxury condo because yeah, they're going to do what you're talking about, and also like they're crap. We looked at a couple; <laughs> they're just like. You know they've, they, they they have all these real glossy photos on Craigslist, but you get in there and it's just like it, it's it's shitty material and there's no character yeah, I don't it's know maybe cutter, that's a bougie,
1: it's yeah. all cookie cutter put together you know kind of stuff. I mean there's literally like three or four complexes that I that I sort of was intrigued by, all owned by the same property management company mm-hmm. uh, within like three blocks of each other like two or three blocks and they were just all fairly similar. And I was just like, man, they're just trying to court all the techies, you know, just trying to get the people with money that need to find a place now to get in there, you know? And I mean, they look nice, I guess, at least like the insides, but I I know that it's just going to be, you know, there's nothing that's going to make me want to stay in a place like that. Like I was looking for some, I'm looking for something with some actual character in a good location where I can, you know, thrive. And I don't know if you could do that in one of those kind of a stat in, in one of those complexes. They,
0: d- Yeah, they're just like, they're so sterile. And yeah. they have like a vending, like, I don't know what they, they have like these amenities that I guess pool and hot tub is nice if they have that. But like, I don't know. Like, I, I was in one the other day for another reason. I was like picking up something that I'd, bought on craigslist and um i was like walking down the hallway following the guy to his apartment and it was like the shinning
1: yeah they feel like hotels man like it's it's just weird like i i i've checked out like two places one of which i'm kind of into um and in like a complex and i was like yeah all right this feels good but the other one that I looked at just felt like a hotel, and I'm just, just like, I'm not into that. Especially if it's one of the nicer ones. Like I haven't checked out any of those, and I'm just, I'm realizing now, I'm just like, they're just gonna try to get me out of my money. They're
0: <laughs> gonna, they're gonna gouge you. Um, so yeah, your nickname this week was a toss-up between "The Rent Is Too Damn High" and um, a riff on Mr. Barricade. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I we were talking right before we started recording. I it sounds like you you haven't been plugged into Mr. Barricade. No, because yeah. you're not a TikToker.
1: I'm not really, no. My my partner tries her dang this to get me to be on TikTok, but uh it's not really my thing. Um yeah. yeah, tell us about this dude.
0: He's a uh Bay Area TikTok star who's been wowing his followers with stories about Urban planning and design. <laughs> the, the, this guy has designed a number of protected bike lanes and other things like that in cities around the Bay. The Mercury News just did a profile on him, and, and I think it's pretty amazing. It's like, first of all, nerd alert, but maybe I'm being a dick. <laughs> I, I think I know I am. Um, because you realize it's guys like this and gals like this who uh, make cities functional. So mm-hmm. I wanted to come out and say that... Um, I, I made fun of, um, his name is, uh, Vignesh Swaminathan. And I'm sorry if I'm butchering that, uh, when, when my partner showed me the TikTok, but I've started to come around a little bit and I'm like, Hey, you know, good for him. He's promoting his business and seems like he's doing good work, making sure that, uh, bicyclists don't get hit by cars.
1: Yeah, man, it's, it's important. Um, and honestly, this might be something nerd alert, uh, that I might tune into because, um, I've kind of always like played around with maps on Google and Google earth and stuff. And, uh, yeah, like I, I had a, a little comment to my partner the other day, like a while ago, like, man, I should have been like an urban planner or something. And she's <laughs> like, you have never said anything that has rang more true to me before. <laughs>
0: um, uh, Seinfeld fan, Kevin. Yes. I can't believe I don't just know that. Um, <laughs> so we should, yeah, that's okay. It's established Seinfeld fan. Um, remember George uh, always was saying that he wanted, he was an architect, Art yes. Vandelay.
1: Vandelay Industries. And,
0: and the, <laughs> there was the, um, there was the episode where like he had, uh, uh, Susan had died. They had the foundation mm-hmm. and like he was, they brought on like a kid that George really liked. For like some fellowship, or so, they were going to sponsor him in some way. Yeah, yeah. And then the kid uh, it pissed George off because he won up to George, saying he wasn't just want to be an architect; he was going to be a city planner. Yeah, yeah. Went yeah. off script. George <laughs> lost it.
1: <laughs> uh, oh yeah, man. Ugh, maybe I should have been a city planner. I,
0: I got to tell you though, Kevin. One thing about maps. They won't love you like I love you.
1: <laughs> Aww.
0: Yeah. I love you too, dude. What's that song about?
1: I have no idea.
0: Hmm. Anywho, um, on the urban planning note, uh, we are going to take a quick break and then uh, talk to our resident urbanist, Benjamin Schneider, staff writer here at SF Weekly, for a, a actually very serious story. His cover story this week is on a... Uh, on a deadly serious topic in fact the overdose death crisis currently gripping san francisco and the drug at the center of it fentanyl so um stay tuned we'll be right back We're back with SF Weekly staff writer Benjamin Schneider. This week, Ben wrote the cover story on San Francisco's epidemic of drug overdose deaths, most of which are tied to the opioid fentanyl. As Ben reveals in his story, in terms of the death toll, drug overdoses in San Francisco have claimed several times more lives than COVID-19 over the past year. And yet, fentanyl And drug overdose deaths are only just beginning to be seen as a major political and public health problem in the city. It's a complicated issue, too, with the war on drugs looming large over law enforcement crackdowns aimed at reducing the supply of fentanyl and debates about the efficacy of the city's pioneering harm reduction approach to drug policy so uh welcome ben and first off can you describe how bad this epidemic of overdose deaths has gotten
2: hi nick thanks for having me i think it's important to foreground this conversation just by noting that everyone who dies of an overdose death in san francisco or anywhere has a name and a story yeah Um, but that's that's not the focus of of this article that i wrote or our conversation here um we're, we're talking about the big picture um, we're talking about statistics, um, and if that can feel cold, and, and certainly it doesn't do justice to the memory of the people who have died of overdoses, Yeah. Um, but it is a really important part of understanding what's going on, um, just from a public health and public policy perspective, uh, these conversations that are happening um, with city leaders and with public health experts who are trying to wrap their minds around this epidemic that we have in, in San Francisco, yeah. um, that, as you mentioned, is... Um, several times more deadly than the COVID 19 epidemic that the city managed to, to get under control so successfully. Um, so, just to, to give you a sense of um, what's been going on with fentanyl, um, I, I want to just present some numbers here. Um, so, overdose deaths in 2020 in San Francisco topped 700. Um, and that is triple the amount of overdose deaths that took place in uh, 2018. And many, many times, Uh, the number of deaths that were happening in um, the 2010 through 2012 uh, era. Um, And by comparison, there were just 230 or so uh, COVID-19 deaths in San Francisco in 2020. So you can see how big of a difference that is. Um, And it it really appears that this year things are continuing to get worse um, in terms of overdose fatalities. Uh, There were 203 overdose deaths in San Francisco between January and March, Um, And another sort of valuable comparison here can be the number of homicide deaths in the city, uh, which was nine in that period. So you can really see from those statistics just how severe this opioid crisis is in San Francisco, how many lives it's claiming. Um, And as I discovered in reporting this story, um, San Francisco is really in in the top tier of uh, cities that are dealing with this crisis. Um, I had public health experts tell me San Francisco looks like Dayton, Ohio, or Lynn, Massachusetts, these working class parts of the Northeast and Midwest that were hit really hard by the opioid epidemic a few years ago. Um, Now, San Francisco is kind of in that role in terms of the national picture. Um, And I think it's also important to note just as San Francisco is going through this, things are deteriorating elsewhere, too. Um, So across the country, um, opioid or overdose deaths, largely driven by opioids um, like fentanyl, went from about 50,000 in 2016 um, to 72,000 in 2019, to then uh, in, in the 12-month period from September 2019 to September 2020, to about 90,000. So it's, it's almost like a, an exponential curve of um, increasing deaths across the country and in San Francisco.
0: Yeah, and your story um and your reporting um attempts to unpack uh you know the the issue from a nationwide standpoint um but also looks at at San Francisco and and tries to answer how it got so bad in San Francisco, why is San Francisco such a hot spot right now. So I know you probably don't have every, the the entire answer. It's a complicated question, but but how did it get this bad in San Francisco?
2: Yeah, well, I think the key point here is that uh, we we still don't really know. I think public health experts are still trying to figure that out because, as I mentioned, it's been it's been rising so fast uh, the overdose deaths. Um, but I think some important context for starting that conversation is um, that. Just a few years ago, back in, in 2010, uh, San Francisco really was uh, seen as a leader in bringing down overdose deaths. Um, and we had, uh, we basically were the standard bearer of this, uh, the progressive harm reduction approach to drug policy, which basically um, the idea is that uh, instead of approaching people who are using drugs with law enforcement, um, you approach them with treatment and with uh, methods that that they can use, um, to, to reduce their risk when they're using drugs. Um, and, you know, and all by all metrics that really worked at reducing fatalities from, um, from, of, of drug overdoses. Uh, in 2000, there were about 120 overdose deaths from heroin. Um, and by 2010, there were 10. So that was really thanks to this harm reduction approach that San Francisco pioneered and, um, the city government really got on board with it and, and funded a lot of services that that carried out that mission, and it worked. Um, but then, uh, basically, it, it appears that as fentanyl has come along, it's it's uh, messed up that equilibrium, and the sort of mix of uh, drugs in the market has been disrupted, uh, and fentanyl now takes up a bigger and bigger. Uh, slice of the of the drug market pie and in tandem these overdose um, deaths are are rising
0: yeah so so one of the questions that um you know we both worked on i think in 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 a back and forth way on this story was was explaining what fentanyl is and why it's so deadly you know um we we hear um sometimes stories um in, in in media outlets that are a little bit more um short form, like perhaps your nightly news um broadcast uh of you know, one that comes to mind was that a a police officer pulled over um somebody and, and there was like a cloud of fentanyl smoke in the car, and the police officer also started to overdose. Um now I know we don't talk about that exact instance in this story, but there is like a lot of fear around fentanyl and, and for good reason, it's, it's incredibly potent as you talk about in your story. But, um, you know, there are also things that people may not, may not understand about fentanyl and maybe, maybe don't even fully understand about the opioid crisis. And we, we wanted to kind of, to unpack that a little bit. So, what I'm saying, what I'm building up to here, is 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 what is it about fentanyl that's so deadly? What is it, and,
2: and why is it so deadly? Yeah. So fentanyl is an opioid, meaning it's um, made of the same chemical, the same molecules that uh, you see in uh, the opium uh, substance derived from poppies, poppy plants, um, and so it's in that family of substances. Um, and essentially, it is the the most potent form of this um, type of, of drug. Um, in, in our story, we use this uh, metaphor that's imprecise, but I think helpful to understand how fentanyl fits into the, the picture here. Um, if, if raw opium is like beer, um, codeine and morphine are like wine, heroin is like whiskey, then fentanyl is like uh, 195 proof white lightning. So it's basically... The most p- potent form of this drug that is is seen in, in a normal, regular basis on on the streets in the U.S. Um, and so, that fact about fentanyl kind of informs everything else about it. Uh, basically, it, it requires very little of the substance to actually get high. Um, so, you have to to, to dose it out. Um, you're often dealing in micrograms of the actual substance. So that makes it very easy to overdo it. If you're, mm-hmm. you know, a couple granules here and there, um, when you are either shooting up or smoking fentanyl, could push you over the limit to overdose. Um, yet another way that fentanyl is driving deaths is particularly in other parts of the country. Actually, less less so in San Francisco, but this probably happens here too. Um, fentanyl is actually cut into drugs like heroin or cocaine, um, or sometimes even meth. Um, because it's got this white powder form that other drugs also often often come in. Mm-hmm. Um, in. In California, interestingly, heroin usually is in this black tar form, so it's hard to mix it with fentanyl. Um, and that's partly why fentanyl is not usually... Um, is Fentanyl is more often sold as fentanyl here rather than mixed into other drugs. Um, and then, of course, uh, people also will will take fentanyl simultaneously with other drugs, specifically stimulants, like meth um, because it is so potent that once you've taken it, you can basically uh, disable yourself and, and you you can't do anything other than lie down. Um, so if, if you take meth alongside fentanyl, you can actually function during your high. but then that of course can also elevate your risk um, of, of overdosing if you, or you know on, on both of those substances potentially.
0: Right. And, um, as I understand it, um, you know, we started hearing about fentanyl in the news f- five, six years ago um, and you mentioned San Francisco's heroin supply is primarily this um, what's known as black tar. Um, it's manufactured in a in a slightly different way than the heroin that tends to come in the East Coast. I think that, uh, as I understand, it has to do with supply chains um, and, and where the, the heroin is coming on the East coast versus where it's coming on the West coast. But, um, but at a certain point, the drug, um, went from being like an octane booster to other, um, opioids or like something used to counterfeit, uh, prescription pills with to like the main event. And, and people now ask for fentanyl, um, on the, on, you know, drug users want it, drug dealers are, are dealing it. And you mentioned that in, in your story that, um, now it is people ask for it. It's sold by drug dealers and that it is, that's sort of unique to San Francisco or, or almost unique. Is that right?
2: Yeah. And I think that's one of the sort of mysteries of, of what's going on here, um, of why San Francisco is seeing so many overdose deaths. I think one reason behind that is because fentanyl is really easy to transport and smuggle, um, because it, it takes so little of the physical substance to actually um, get get an individual high. So you can, um, you know, bring a, a very small amount with you in your back pocket, essentially, and, and make a pretty good amount of money um, selling it on the street. Um, I think uh, another issue, another reason why fentanyl is its own supply is that um, you know once you start taking it. Uh, it sort of sets in motion this uh, this chain of of events where uh, that that becomes sort of what you get used to in terms of that level of potency. so and
0: that tolerance, yeah,
2: yeah, that tolerance. so it, you know other kinds of opioids might not satisfy you anymore. Um, and of course the the danger there is that um, you know if, if fentanyl is is the only substance that will satisfy your cravings, uh, it's it's a taking time bomb because uh-huh. um, you know, just as I said, you know a couple of granules too much here and there um and and you you could uh kill yourself
0: yeah so um so you we've set the scene here for for why um this is so deadly and and you've set the scene that this is clearly a big problem, specifically in San francisco um it's a growing problem across the nation, but San Francisco is one of these really troubled hot spots. What is being um, done to address it? And and who are are the players um, trying to tackle this problem?
2: So there's definitely more that can be done um, in this universe of harm reduction efforts. Um, And and there's a lot happening there that is almost certainly saving a lot of lives. Um, This organization called the Dope Project uh, gives out uh, canisters of Narcan which is an uh, overdose reversal drug that um, you can administer to someone who's overdosed via a nasal spray and, and usually revive them. And uh, this organization is, is giving out literally thousands of doses of Narcan, um, and, and it's, it appears that people are, in fact, administering. These are, these are just normal people, people who um, you know, either themselves use uh, opioids or, or know people who use opioids are sort of in that community um, they are administering thousands of, of uh, overdose reversal drugs in addition to paramedics and police who are also doing that. So, so those efforts are expanding, and certainly um, a lot of people want to see that expanded even further. Um, and that's, that's part of what uh, Supervisor Matt Haney's package is going to do, getting more Narcan into the hands of SRO workers, training them on how to use it. Um, that's, that's certainly something that's on the horizon. There's also uh, buprenorphine, which is kind of like methadone. It's a, a, dr- a sort of a replacement drug for opioids that can help reduce cravings, reduce withdrawal symptoms, <clears throat> symptoms, and um, generally help kind of wean people off uh, off opioids. Help them uh, kind of get through that phase of, of uh, you know trying to break break free of their addiction. Mm-hmm. So that that drug was hyper regulated by the federal government. Uh, people who doctors or nurses who prescribed it needed to have taken an $800 course. and even then there were rules on how many people they could prescribe it to. Um, and so that was something that public health experts I spoke to were like, this doesn't make any sense. We need to loosen the rules on buprenorphine. It can really help people um, break free of their addiction. Yeah, uh, and in fact, that happened um, on just last week with uh, uh, HHS secretary. Javier Becerra, who is the former California attorney general, he released this rule um, that basically loosens a lot of those, those uh, restrictions on buprenorphine in response to what's going on, not only in San Francisco, but across the nation with these 90,000 deaths uh, of, of, opioid, of of drug overdoses that have taken place in about a 12-month period.
0: R- right, and, and and we talk about the the legacy of the the war on drugs looming large um, in San Francisco. Um, we mentioned that because we, you know, the the um, um, players. Uh, in, what is his name? Ch- 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 C- B- D A Chesa. Chesa. Um, we mentioned that because D.A. Chesa Boudin. Did I say that right? Boudin, yeah, I think so. Okay. <laughs> We mentioned that because uh, D.A. Chase Boudin, you know, he really doesn't—he doesn't want. He said, "I don't want to double down on the war of war on drugs," meaning that he doesn't want to just lock everybody up. Um, I think drugs like buprenorphine and and methadone, before it, um, because of this country's view of of drugs, were like, "Well, this is this is itself a kind of opioid. It's a replacement. Hmm. It's not." it's It's not a cure. you're robbing Peter to pay Paul. I don't know if I got that metaphor right but um, but but this this view is is changing a little bit and I heard a very interesting interview on NPR and I don't remember the names of the people that were involved but um, this um, one organization was was looking into um, the question of well, if more buprenorphine is prescribed, isn't it just going to get diverted and, and get and end up on the street and and other people are using this? drug to get high. And, um, the woman said, well, yes, that's true. But in our research, what we found was that the people who were seeking out buprenorphine on the street were usually doing it, um, to sort of treat themselves because they had such difficulty getting into a drug treatment program. Mm. And, um, you know, that, that that's a story for another time. Um, but it, it is, its it is interesting, and I, I think we didn't get into that in the story, but I wanted to bring that up on the podcast. It was totally an and point. yeah, I
2: mean, since since we're talking about it, I think um, that's a really good point about what what harm reduction means and looks like. I mean, uh, essentially, at this point, uh, people are dying of of overdosing on fentanyl at these really alarming rates. Um, but we know in San Francisco, we know what it looks like to to bring overdose deaths from heroin way down. We have some experience with dealing with that and. Um, we, we have strategies that work. Um, and so I actually think the situation with, with fentanyl might call for, um, you know, potentially even, uh, decriminalization of, of heroin, because that's a drug that we can handle. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly of other opioids, certainly of, um, these, these treatment drugs like buprenorphine, um, you know, people are much better off turning towards these, uh, these other, other opioids or, or, um you know, opioid uh, craving, reducing drugs that we actually understand. Um, and so that, that was a point that I wanted to make in the article. I, I didn't have the opportunity to editorialize like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that's, that's something that San Francisco could explore more, um, you know, in, in just pursuing, as, as one, of, one of my sources, Dan Ciccarone of UCSF said, truly outrageous solutions here, because it's, um, it's just not a tenable situation right now. So, many and of course, are dying.
0: of course, another um, solution that's been floated that that makes a lot of people uncomfortable, but um, ha- we've seen has seen success in other parts of the world, safe consumption sites.
2: Yeah, safe consumption sites are a um, fairly common practice in many countries throughout the world, including Canada and um, a lot of parts of Europe. And basically, they're places where people can go to use hard drugs without fear of prosecution, um and they're staffed by medical professionals who are there to intervene if something goes wrong. Um, and they have a really good record in terms of preventing overdose deaths. Um, a- as far as I've heard, there have not been any recorded overdose deaths at these sites um, in 20 years throughout the world. Uh, so, you know, that's, that's a pretty amazing statistic. And so there are, there are politicians and public health experts who really want to bring that to California. Um, our state senator, Scott Weiner in San Francisco, has a bill um, in the legislature right now that has passed through the state Senate and is, is expected to pass um, through the assembly, um, just like it did two years ago uh, when it was vetoed by Governor Jerry Brown. And now um, people who support this policy are hoping that Gavin Newsom is going to uh, sign this bill into law, um, and also that the federal government under President Biden is going to be more receptive to it uh, than previous administrations, so there's still a lot of question marks, but there is a lot of support for this concept in San Francisco in particular and um, throughout a lot of California to um, bring a safe injection sites to to, to the city. Um, there'd probably just be a few at first. Certainly, I've, I've spoken to public health experts who think we need to, to have a lot of these kinds of places. Um, one in every SRO is what is what one person told me. Um, but that that is still a pretty far off Um given the sort of political hurdles to, to bringing this to fruition.
0: And we should say that, you know, it's not just, um, I mean, it is, people can go to these sites without fear of prosecution, but, but the idea is, um, in doing so, they will be, um, coming in contact with people, um, professionals who can say, Hey, you know, do you want to get in a program? Do right. you want to, do you want to try to get on buprenorphine? Do you, you know, um, so like that, you know, that is, that's part of, Um, these safe consumption sites. Um, There's a lot more serious talk right now about um, the supply side of fentanyl, the so-called supply side, um, which, um, you know, means trying to lock up every drug dealer and prosecute even, you know, users potentially to scare people from, from using. Um, And that's been a historically fraught approach that's, uh, you know, um, associated with the war on drugs, which disproportionately, um, targets the disenfranchised, particularly people of color. Um, what can you tell us about that though? Because, because of what's been going on with fentanyl, um, even in a very progressive city like San Francisco, people are starting to be like, look, we might be giving these people too, too much freedom.
2: Yeah, I think, um, no one really in the the mainstream of San Francisco's politics would would really endorse kind of what you're describing earlier in terms of like locking everybody up. Um, I think there's there's a move towards maybe embracing a uh, a carefully calibrated supply side approach. I think that's kind of how how people like Supervisor Matt Haney or or District Attorney Chase Boudin would put it. Um, basically, that you know with this wariness about what happened with the war on drugs, where so many uh, black and Latino men were incarcerated and, and put in prison for very long times, that really devastated communities throughout America um, that no one wants to repeat that. But at the same time, um, what we're seeing with Fentanyl is that it's just it's so potent and so deadly that um, public officials are increasingly saying we really need to do something to, to reduce the supply of this drug. Um, and, you know, there are harm reduction advocates who push back on that, who say that, um, who say rightfully that the 40 year war on drugs in America um, also corresponded to 40 years of increasing drug overdose deaths. So I think the key question with this debate is how different is fentanyl than other substances that um, America has has seen these really large spikes in usage with before? Um, you know, h- how much of a difference does it make to get um, kilos off the street in terms of how, how many fewer people are going to die. And I think those questions are are not clear at this point. Um, you know, people uh, in the harm reduction community really point to the thousands of overdose reversals that have taken place with the help of Narcan um, and, and say, hey, look, how many more people would have died if we weren't doing this? But then the police will say, you know, we seized five kilos of fentanyl um, last year. I'm kind of making that number up. It's somewhere Mm -hmm. in that ballpark. Um, you know, what, what could have happened with, um, all that fentanyl going into people's systems, even if they're doing it, um, as carefully as they can, it's just, it's really hard to control your intake of a substance that's so potent where just a couple little granules could, could put you over the edge. Yeah. So, so that's kind of the debate that's happening right now. And, and one thing I think to add to it is that, um, One thing Supervisor Haney told me is that it's not necessarily prosecuting more people. Um, Many of the people who are dealing drugs and fentanyl in San Francisco are very much engaged in the criminal justice system. They're um, getting arrested, um, but they're not necessarily uh, staying in in jail or prison for very long. There was a recent report by public comment in SF that um, found 84% of people booked on felony drug charges in San Francisco were released within two days. Um, and so that that's an indicator that maybe there, there needs to be some different thinking about you know maybe people staying in jail for longer. if not, like certainly not years. I don't think a lot of people in, in city politics or the San Francisco Superior Court want to do that, but potentially somewhat longer than two days um, or, or somewhat stricter kind of parole rules. So those mm-hmm. are some of the questions that are that are coming up now with this debate about the supply side.
0: Okay. All right. Well, um, it's a very thoroughly reported story. Um, it's on the streets now in SF Weekly newsstands. Um, it's online, and I want to thank Ben for uh, his his hard work. He took a, a long time reporting this, and it it was worthwhile. So thanks, Ben. Thanks, Nick. Thanks so much for tuning into this week's edition of the SF Weekly Podcast. The episode was produced by me, Nick Veronin. Our inimitable co-host is Kevin Hume. Our audio engineer is Mike Huguenor. For more hot takes, deep dives, and alternative views on San Francisco news, go to our website, sfweekly.com, subscribe to our podcast, and pick up a copy of this week's paper. Thanks so much for tuning in. See you next week.